today. Would Father Gregory, who is going to introduce himself in a minute, mine is Sister Carino, and I'm one of the parish sisters here, and I have two very able assistants next to me who are going to introduce themselves. What's your name, Antabella? Huh? Do you want to say your name into the microphone? Antabella. And how old are you, Antabella? Five. Antabella is five. Mena? I'm Mena, and I am eight. Sister Karina and Father Gregory's uh, ages will remain undisclosed. (laughs) Father Gregory, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Father Gregory, and I'm 34 years old. Speak for yourself. Um, And I am originally from the United States. I was born between the cities of Philadelphia and New York City. And I am one of four children. My older sister's names are Rebecca and Kristen, and they're married. And they have lots of kids. And I have a younger brother who's getting married next weekend. So you can say a prayer for him. His name is Matthew. Um, And I went to school in Ohio at Franciscan University of Steubenville. And then I entered the Order of Preachers in 2010. I was ordained a priest in 2016. And since then, I've done various odd jobs. And now I live in Switzerland, um, which if you're traveling here by train or by car, Uh, You go through France on the way, and then it's a tiny country with lots of mountains that are very beautiful. I would say ask your parents to bring you there, except that it's very expensive. So they might resent me if I suggested it. Um, And I'm studying theology, and when I'm done studying theology there, uh, I will head back to the United States in all likelihood. And I'm just here for the weekend at the invitation of Father Lawrence Liu, so very delighted to be here. And there you go. Okay, so the way this is going to work is we have our questions box where you've all submitted questions, and then if we exhaust the questions box, which may not happen because you have filled it very well, I'm very proud of all of you. Once we get to the questions box, Sister Lucy has a roving microphone so she can take questions from the floor. And I think Mayor might be helping her out with that as well, so we're very grateful to Mayor for helping with that. So, Mena, what is our first question? What is God made out of? Wow. Excellent question. So what is God made out of? So the short answer is nothing. In the sense that God doesn't have parts. God doesn't have a history. God doesn't have steps for assembly. You know, like a toy or something like that. So God is pure spirit. So we typically try to um, divide up reality between things that are spiritual and things that are bodily. So we're, we're very used to seeing bodily things like chairs and floors and scapulars, which is the name of this part of our habit. Um, but there are also spiritual realities in the world. And just because you can't see them doesn't mean that they're not real. In fact, they're more real. So you have a soul, for instance. You, as a human being, are made out of body and soul. Your soul is spiritual, you can't see it, but it's very real indeed. And God pours his divine life into your soul. Now, God is pure spirit. So you can't hold him in the way that you can hold a chair or touch him in the way that you can touch the floor, but you can encounter him, you can have a friendship with him, you can communicate with him. So he doesn't have parts, he's not made out of stuff, he just is Pure spirit. So that's maybe the beginning of an answer, and maybe I'll leave it at that. (laughs) 
What do you think of that, Mena? It's okay. That's okay, Father Gregory. Honest. Savagely honest. Excellent. Now, Antebella has a question, don't you, Antebella? I'm ready. Why was the word made? Why was the world made? Yes. That's a tremendous question, too. Okay. Usually, when we make things, we make them because we need them. Okay, so... Um, let's say that you live at home with your mom and your dad and one of them is responsible for cooking dinner tonight and they're going to make things for dinner so that way you can eat it because you need to eat in order to keep on going. But the thing that's tricky with this situation, with the creation of the world, is that God doesn't need things, right? So God isn't lonely. God isn't lazy. God isn't somehow lacking so God is perfect life, and he enjoys perfect life forever and ever and ever. So then why would he create? He doesn't, he doesn't need to create. He doesn't lack anything. He rather creates because he wants to share with us his life. So the way that it was expressed to me once was, God created us because he thought we might like it. <laughs> Another good way of saying it is, God had a secret that was too good to keep. And that secret was the secret of his divine life. And so he created us so that he could share the secret of his divine life with us and so that we could share that same secret with our friends. Very good. Thank you, Father. <laughs> now, we have a question from Mena. How do fathers become fathers? And this is a question about priest fathers. Ah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just, this is a, this, <laughs> this is a family-friendly radio show. Exactly, yeah. Um, yes, with care. Um, so it depends on where you live and what century you live in. You know that word century? Like if you live in the 1900s or the 2000s, whatever, you get it. Um, but usually you experience a call from God so he starts moving you in a certain direction. Usually you start to want to pray more and you want to go to mass more and you want to give up good things so that way you can get hungrier for the Lord and you want to study the faith so you can know about God and have a more rich relationship with God and you want to serve the poor and you want to dive into sacred scripture. And then when that happens, the Lord starts making himself known or introducing himself in really powerful ways. And then you start to hear a small voice in your heart that says, I want your whole life so I can have your whole life for my service. And it's not like you hear it in your ear, but it's like the movement of your life begins, it, it, it begins to make itself felt. And then you say, man, I don't, I don't think that I could do otherwise. So let me just tell a short story of a saint. Maybe you've heard of Saint Maximilian Kolbe. At the end of his life, he was in a terrible place where bad people were hurting good people. And bad people were going to hurt this good man. And this good man said, my wife, my children, because he wanted to be back with his wife and his children. And St. Maximilian Kolbe heard that and he stepped forward and he said, I'll take this man's place because I'm a priest. And what does a priest do? He gives up his life for those whom God loves. So it's like that. You hear this voice, it pushes you in a direction and then you have to study a bunch of things and then you get ordained. <laughs> Thank you, Father. And I think that's particularly interesting because we have a lot of 
young boys in this room who might be thinking, oh, I, I think I've experienced what, what Father Gregory has talked about of hearing the Lord calling me to give myself to him. So it's always good to think about this. Excellent. Antebella. Oh, yes. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God allow bad things to happen? That's a great question. So you can think about your experience at home, right? So a lot of times, I don't know, you know, who, which, which members of your family you live with, but the older people in your house, the people who love you, they want to prevent you or stop you from getting hurt, okay? So like maybe they're in the kitchen, they're going to be hot things and sharp things. And when you go to reach for those hot things or reach for those sharp things, your mommy or your daddy or your uncle or whoever will say, no, 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 that's hot. Or no, 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 that's sharp. But sometimes you just, you can't stop. You just really want to touch it. You just really want to hold it. And then maybe when whoever isn't looking, you do touch it and, and it hurts, right? It cuts or it burns. And then that makes you pull your hand away. And you look and it's maybe there's a little cut or maybe there's a little burn. And you have the memory now of, of what that did to you. You have the memory of how that felt. And it keeps you from doing it again because you still have that mark or you still have that experience in your mind. And in that experience, so like when you get a cut or when you get a burn, then you can take it to somebody who loves you and you can say, I'm hurt. And then that person takes care of you. That person helps you to heal. That person tells you that you know, he or she loves you, which is great because that's really what we want to know in life. And so in our own lives, God tries to protect us from certain things. But also when we, when we really go after things that hurt us, sometimes he lets it happen. And then when he lets it happen, he comes quick to the rescue and he loves us in a particularly awesome way, in a particularly close way. So God doesn't let bad things happen unless he can reach us in those bad things and love us in those bad things. What do you think of that, Antebella? Unimpressed. Antebella's been, no, she's been, I think you've been stunned into silence, haven't you, Antebella? Mm. Yeah, stunned into silence. <laughs> now, the next, the next question is a slight gear change, Father. I'm ready. Okay. Go for it, Mena. <laughs> if you... If you had to be any kind of pizza topping, what would it be? Yeah, that's Can a great question. Can I just question. clarify, Father? That's not, if you could eat any, this yeah, is be. an ontological question. This yeah, is yeah. about being. No, I, I, I thank you for that. So I worked for six years in a pizzeria. It was called Trey Fertelli, um, which is American for Trey Fertelli. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I thought long and hard about pizza toppings. So certain pizza toppings are evil. Um, like green peppers and onions. Not in the sense that they taste bad, but in the sense that they hold water, okay? Just until the moment that you put them in the oven. So it's like, there's like an army of water molecules in each onion and in each green pepper. And what they say to each other is, hold, hold, and then you cook them and they go, everyone now! And then they flood the top of your pizza with moisture. So that way, when you look at what was formerly cheese, instead you see cheese soup. So I would not be one of those things because they ruin life. <laughs> also, my experience is that pepperoni is hit or miss, you know? So not all spices fit all types of people. And uh, depending on how your pepperoni is cured, it might be just a little too pepperoni. You don't want a topping to dominate the pizza and leap off the surface and say, hey, you're eating me. So I, I, I find pepperoni to be 
somewhat spotty for that reason. Um, so what I typically order, and this is me describing tastes so as to jump off on a more ontological tangent, um, is sausage, mushrooms, and black olives, okay? Because it's a nice savory balance, okay? It, it fires on different cylinders, and it brings together a kind of gentle blend of all that you hope for in pizzadom. Um, but you, you, you said that I have to choose one. So I'm looking to achieve that kind of savory balance in, in one single topping. And as a result of which, I feel as if my hand is forced that I'm going to choose sausage. Because I think we're here to deliver the goods. And especially Dominicans, when you ask a Dominican to preach, what you're asking for is, is sacred truth, yeah. you know, saving teaching. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sausage is the topping best attuned to deliver the goods of just that sort. So thank you for that question. Thank you, Father. That was more extensive and more mind-blowing <laughs> than I was. That, that's broadened my horizons. <laughs> Antebella, have you got a question for Father? Yeah. <laughs> Why did Jesus tell us so little about heaven? Why did Jesus tell us so little about heaven? That's a great, yeah, that's great. So, <sighs> there are different ways you could answer. I'm going to pick one way to answer. So, sometimes... It's good to be surprised. It's good to be surprised because part of the joy is the surprise. So like there's this one time when I was playing hide and seek with my sisters and I hid under one of my sister's bed and I found uh, a big Lego set. Do you play with Legos or do you know what Legos are? I have Legos. You have Legos. Okay, good. This pleases me. Um, so I found a big Lego set and it was right about this time of year. So it was right before Christmas, and I was the only person in my house that played with Legos. And so I saw it, and I was like, I bet I'm going to get this Lego set for Christmas. And then Christmas came, and I didn't get it. And I said, maybe I'll get it for Epiphany. And then Epiphany came, and I didn't get it. And, and what happened was, I wasn't able to appreciate my other gifts because I was expecting something else, right? And so my experience of Christmas and of Epiphany was kind of bittersweet because, you know, my parents loved me and they gave me good things to show that they loved me. Um, but I didn't, I didn't have the thing that I had imagined. And here's the thing. There's no way for us to imagine how good heaven is. No way for us to imagine how good it is. St. Paul says, I has not seen, ear has not heard, nor is it so much as dawned on the heart of man what God has ready for those who love him. So instead of showing us an image so that we get our hopes up for something like that and then are disappointed when we don't get it. God says, I'm going to give you nothing left, nothing less than myself. And I want to draw you into that relationship and I want to bring you closer to me. And I'm not going to let you settle for little images, for little pictures, for little indications. That's an overly complicated word. Um, so I'm going to just speak to you of my love for you. And then when you come to heaven, then you'll have all of eternity to appreciate just what heaven is like. Marvelous. Thank you, Father. Now, our next question is a good question for this time of year. Now, those of you who are at our children's Liturgy of the Word this morning, you all know what time of year it is right now, don't you? Can you shout it out? Uh, for those of you listening on the radio, you may have heard several children shouting Advent. And that is correct. It is Advent. So... Mena, you've got a question that's quite a good question for Advent, haven't you? Yeah. Let's do a swap. Why has Jesus never given us the expect 
time, day, and year of when he will come to save us at the end of time? That's a great, uh, that's a great question. Um, and it's one that many, many holy people in the last 2,000 years have thought long and hard about. I think maybe one way to do it is this. So Jesus is coming again. And we're all meant to prepare for that. But while that is very, very important, we also have the opportunity to welcome Jesus who comes to each of us now. St. Bernard, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who lived in the 11th and 12th century, he said, Christ comes to us in three moments. He comes to us in his birth at Christmas, so 2,000 years ago. He comes to us at the end of time, and he comes to us in the present moment. And in the sacraments, right, in our participation at Mass, in our prayer, our daily prayer, in the love that we show for our brothers and sisters, we have the opportunity to welcome Jesus here and now. And he wants us to enjoy that, and he wants us to grow in that. And so rather than say, I'm going to come on May 2nd, 2042, and you can all just lay about on, um, what do you call them? Like those reclining chairs here? And do you call them chaise lounge, barca loungers, I would just call recliners? Them, I would just call them chairs that go back. Chairs that go back. So rather than waiting around on chairs that go back uh, for the next 20 years and then getting things together right before I come, I want you to be ready in every moment because I come to you in every moment. So don't delay. Because there are some things that can't be had at the end. So for instance, let's say that I say to you, all right, I want you to be an excellent basketball player so that way we can win the championship in May. And you say, cool, cool, cool. I'll start practicing at the end of April. You don't actually want to win the championship because you can't become a good basketball player in one week or two weeks. You have to spend the next six months training and preparing. So too with our relationship with Jesus. We can't just borrow it from somebody at the end or just get back up to speed with a few days left. It's something that should be present to us. It's something that should motivate us in every moment of every day. Thank you, Father. Mm. What do you think of that? I'm impressed. Whoa. Oh. Let's go. You're going up in our estimation, Father. Dude. Now, um, help us. Before, before you um, grab the microphone from my hands, um, little interlude because we have some questions from our parish altar servers. So we have an amazing group of young men who received Holy Communion for the first time last year, and they are now serving the parish as altar servers. And Emmanuel, who I don't think is in the room at the moment, but he, he is their sort of um, training overlord and has made them into amazing altar servers. But they are full of questions. And so Emmanuel told me some questions that the altar servers ask during Mass. So these are questions from our parish altar servers, Father. Thank you very much, Mella. So the first one is, why does the priest wash his hands at Mass? Good question. Yeah. Um, Father Lawrence will give a better answer in short order. Um, but the basic idea is that you're going up to the holiest place imaginable. So like a priest wears an alb, for instance, a white garment, to show that he goes up in the place of the people to make a pure offering. And I think that washing his, you know, washing his hands has a similar purpose, that you want to go up and offer a pure offering. 
So our Lord Jesus Christ makes us pure. He makes us spotless, but we can also, you know, receive that gift. We can receive it better or we can receive it worse. And we want to live our lives in such a way as to receive it better. So when we celebrate mass, we include gestures that show that we're serious about going up to the altar as pure as God wills. Thank you very much, Father. Our second altar server question is, what's a tabernacle and what's inside? Right, great question. Um, so a tabernacle is where Jesus is before and during and after the Mass. So not, not the altar, but in the gold, for lack of a better word, box, right, at the high altar. And the idea is tabernacles are first referred to in the tradition in the Old Testament as the tent where God in his glory dwells with his people. So when Israel leaves Egypt, when they're coming into the possession of their freedom, God shows that he is for his people by dwelling with them in a cloud, which cloud is in this tabernacle, in this tent. And so he shows that he cares for them. He shows that he provides for them. He shows that he protects them by his presence in that cloud. And when our Lord Jesus comes and takes human flesh, he fulfills all of these different signs of the Old Testament which point to him. And so our Lord dwells with us in bodily form even more powerfully, even more magnificently in the most holy Eucharist. So um, when Christians read the Gospel of John, for instance, they read this line where it says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, for I have shared with you everything that I have from my Father. And it's true of friends that they spend time together. You can't have a friendship with somebody unless you spend time together. And so our Lord so wills to share friendship with us that he dwells with us here on earth. And he dwells with us in such humble fashion. And he wants to be available for us. He wants to be available for us for adoration of the Most Blessed Sacrament, which we have here at St. Dominic's before the 6 p.m. Mass, at least on the nights that I've been here. Um, and he wants to dwell with the sick so that they can receive him before they go to meet him. And so the Lord remains in the tabernacle so that way we can um, enjoy his friendship in close ways, in intimate ways. Marvelous, thank you very much, Father. I have one more question that I got asked at Mass today before I hand back over to my helpers who are, I think, slightly on the verge of mutiny because I've held the microphone for too long. <laughs> so. I got asked at Mass today by a young lady a very good question during the Liturgy of the Eucharist, and this might need some explaining, Father, for, for, the, for, the, for the viewers at home. I'm going to be doing some, some, like, miming, but just, you know, bear with me. Why, Father, at Mass, why do you make Holy Communion look like Pac-Man? Ah, uh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, we're Dominican friars. Yep. Right, And the Dominican friars have uh, a rite, a way of celebrating the sacred liturgy. It's called the Dominican rite. And there's a particular way that the Dominican will break the host before he shows it to the people and before he consumes it, he receives it. And that way of breaking the host, first breaking it in the middle and then rotating um, one half of the host 90 degrees and rejoining it to the other is... A, you know, it's a practice proper to the Dominican rite. I don't actually know if it's true of other rites because I don't know them, but I know that it's true of that rite. Um, and there's 
different signs in the way that the priest celebrates the liturgy, which communicate different realities. One thing that I like about how a Dominican receives Holy Communion is that he receives it with his left hand, which in Western tradition or Western culture is often seen as um, the impure hand or like the bad hand. Don't worry about it. If you are left-handed, this is Such not... Such as me. Okay, right. Yeah, so not a condemnation. Um, but a Dominican has hope in God's healing and growing grace. And he has hope that even those parts of our humanity, which we think of in some way as bad, that those two can be saved, that our Lord Jesus Christ can save all of it. And so he receives from his left hand as a kind of sign of that hope. Um, so, and Father Lawrence will be able to answer that question better at a later date. Why did God make Jesus? Right. Great question. So uh, why did God make Jesus? So a first step in answering the question is to say, well, Jesus is God. Okay? So Jesus is God. God, we say, is a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We profess belief in one God, but that one God is interpersonal. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. So they are distinct persons and one God. There you go. You understand the Blessed Trinity. Awesome. Um, and in the fullness of time, says the letter of St. Paul to the Galatians, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to deliver from the law those who were subject to it. So the Father begets the Son. He, he gives birth to the Son. That's a strange language, but he begets the Son from all eternity. So there is no time during which the Father is not begetting the Son. But in addition, or yeah, in addition, he... He sends the Son into his creation to reveal who he is and to save creation, to save us from our sins. So, our Lord Jesus Christ takes our human nature. So, the second person of the Most Blessed Trinity, the Son, takes our human nature so that in bringing our human nature as close to God as possible, he could heal it and he could elevate it. So, that way, we wouldn't be kept from him by our sins, but that we could be purified from our sins and then grown beyond our human limitations to enjoy eternal life with him in Trinitarian communion, in divine friendship. Thank you, Father. Are you down with that, Antebella? Um, pretty good. That was pretty good, Father. Perfect. This pleases me. Excellent. Now, just a heads up, we have three questions left in the questions box and in terms of our timings of how long we've got for like audience questions from the floor I have no idea so we'll just sort of play that by ear I suppose mm -hmm. excellent very good Mena what's your question I need to be impressed by you what's that I need to be impressed by you <laughs> um, there's two questions why is there um, a pink candle and why is it the odd one out? Oh, yeah. So there are four weeks of Advent, and you have four candles that would be lit 
on each of those four weeks. So you light one candle the first week and then two candles the second week and then three can't you get where this is going. Um, and so the third Sunday of, of Advent is called Gaudete Sunday. That's right, right? Right, thanks, okay. I get confused between Gaudete Sunday and Laetare Sunday, which is embarrassing. I've only been Catholic for whatever, okay. Um, so it's called Gaudete Sunday. That word Gaudete means rejoice, and the word comes from the texts of the liturgy, specifically from the, the first words that are spoken in the Mass. And we're told to rejoice in anticipation of the Lord's coming. So it's a kind of reminder that his coming is very, very soon. So maybe the first two weeks of Advent were difficult for us, or we had intended to do some things in preparation for Christmas. And Gaudete Sunday is a way of kicking that back into action. So of, of diving deeper into our Advent preparation. And so it's a way of kind of breaking up the the one color of Advent, or like the one tendency, the one movement of Advent, by giving us a little boost or an encouragement to go deeper. Yeah. Very good, thank you, Father. And now, Antebella, you have your final question from the chat box, not the chat box, sorry, I spent too much time on Zoom, from the questions box. Do we have guardian angels? We do. Yeah, that's a great question. So we do have guardian angels, and this is revealed in the sacred scriptures. And we celebrate the feast of the guardian angels on October 2nd each year. And it's a good thing uh, to pray to your guardian angel um, to ask for protection, um, to ask for lights and insights. And one of the things that, you know, this reveals to us is just how much God loves us, that God would provide us with every imaginable grace and blessing. In addition to having, you know, for, for many of us, uh, people in our family who love us very much, we hope that all of you have people in your family that love you very much. Um, we also have people in the, our celestial family, in our heavenly family, who love us so much as to seek to protect us from bad things and to aid us in good things. So yes, you have a guardian angel. Thank you, Father. And now Mena has our very, very, very last question from the questions box before we go to the floor. Is it a good one, Mena? An easy one. Ah, perfect. When did Jesus go to heaven? Check this out. You ready for this? Jesus never left heaven. Whoa. Yeah. You ready for this? It gets wilder. Jesus is heaven. That's more amazing than your pizza topping answer, Father. <laughs> Elaborate, please. <laughs> well, we can think about the way in which our Lord identifies himself in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so he gives a lot of parables in the Gospel of Matthew, especially in maybe chapter 13, I think it is. And he often begins those parables by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. And fascinatingly enough, he doesn't say, it's like a place where you've got all kinds of cool food and sweet amusement park rides. He says, the kingdom of heaven is, and then he describes somebody doing something. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, when having found a pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had to purchase it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field. Um, those two parables actually come back to back, and it's fascinating. It's weird because you have two parables that seem to say the same thing, like the kingdom of heaven is worth a lot of money, so 
get a lot of money, and then buy it. But there's a reason that our Lord repeats himself, because he's actually drawing our attention to a deeper fact. So first, we hear that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field, and we're supposed to sell out for the Lord. We're supposed to do all that lies within our power to find that treasure. But then it follows up with, it's, a pearl, it's like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And I think a, a way of reading that is to see our Lord as that merchant. The kingdom of heaven is like, it's like our Lord, who having found a pearl of great price, his beloved bride, the church, sold all that he had, shed every drop of his blood for love of us on the cross, so as to purchase us back from sin and death. And in doing that, he makes it possible for us to find him, the treasure buried in the field. So our Lord Jesus Christ is heaven insofar as heaven is the vision of God, which we enjoy in a way that cannot be lost or cannot be lessened, but which fills us to overflowing and provides us with joy unimaginable. So our Lord is heaven, and throughout the whole of his earthly life, he remains God in heaven, and his human nature is perfectly wed to that vision of heaven from start to finish. That is a complicated thing, but I feel like the basics of it are understandable. <laughs> Thank you very much, Father. So we've exhausted the questions box, which means that Antebella and Mena, your, your job as my able assistants has been completed. So I want you to give yourselves a pat on the back. And I think we can give them all a round of applause as well. Round of applause. Very good. Excellent. So, well done, girls. You can stay here if you like with me and the microphone, which I, I appreciate is, is a very exciting um, piece of technology for you both. Now, Sister Lucy has a roving microphone, and she's going to be taking questions from the floor. And they, these are mostly going to be questions from grown-ups, I think, looking, looking at the audience. So if anyone has a question... Could you please put your hand up? Excellent. We have our first question from Dominic. Hello, Father. Why on earth did God make nits and wasps and skin-borrowing creatures? This is actually on behalf of my wife uh, particularly. But actually, it's a question. sounds facetious, but it's a question risen, arose by, uh, I can't remember, uh, Stephen Fry, for example. He was on 60 Seconds talking about eye-borrowing insects and why would God make such a, a thing for our day-to-day -day life, their nuisances and maybe they serve conservation for nature but aside from that what about the maybe uglier side of nature that we believe is part of god's kingdom yeah that's a great question short answer i have no idea um but i believe habitually that god is wise and that god is love and so when we inquire into these things we seek the connections that obtain among what he does in his wise love and so we know that there are effects of sin in all of creation. That, so for instance, St. Thomas talks about the state of original justice where our first parents, Adam and Eve, would have been born in right relation to God, to each other, and to creation. So their minds and hearts would have been subject to God. Their lower power, their emotions or passions would have been subject to their higher powers, their, their minds and hearts. Um, and then their bodies would have been subject to their souls. And in addition, in his Romans commentary, he adds that all of material creation would have been subject to man. So that doesn't mean that they would have had fundamentally different natures, like lions would still have eaten antelope in the garden, says St. Thomas, uh, because it seems like the lion nature 
is ordered to the consumption of meat. Uh, and so, okay. So there's, there's already in the garden a kind of physical evil baked in, right? Insofar as you have material creatures which build themselves up by the destruction or reduction of other material creatures. And that leads us to a consideration of whether, like, like what is God doing in creation? And St. Thomas asks this question in Prima Par's question 25, article 6, on the power of God. He asks whether God could have created a better world. And he says, undoubtedly, yeah, it lies within his power. But God is not motivated by creating a best possible world. He is motivated by creating a world in which his glory is manifest and our salvation is possible. So he's not looking for the optimization or maximization of material conditions because that's, that's a specific, determinate, but limited good. And so when we inquire into the nature of these things, it may have been the case that they would have operated somewhat differently in the garden without fundamentally changing their nature. But we can still, um, you know, gaze into the wise love of God uh, with these aspects of nature, these physical evils baked in, and ask him how he is making himself manifest and how we are called to respond in pursuit of the salvation which flows forth from him. Um, so that's, I guess, the beginning of an answer. So this next question is going to be the final question for our Radio Maria listeners. So the broadcast will be coming to a conclusion after this question. Um, but for us who are together um, in, in the flesh together, we can continue um, hearing and answering questions. So yes, this next one will be the last one for Radio Maria listeners. So let's, let's go out on a note of theological amazingness and wonder. Can you do that for us, Eru? You can do that. So, we all know about school and RE. Yeah. So once my teacher said, we believe that G Jesus works through other religions, and in the Bible it says, um, you should only serve one God, God. But in other religions, um, sometimes they serve more than one God. Um, um, that makes sense to me already as a question, so thanks. That's a great question, and it's a really good question for the 21st century. So it's a question that um, the basically pastors of the church addressed in a big way in the middle of the 20th century. So the leaders of the church come together in what's called a council every so often. And the big councils are called ecumenical councils. The word ecumenical means the whole empire, okay? Um, and at the most recent one, they wrote a document about this. And maybe it's one that you can talk with your parents about or with the sisters about. And it's called Lumen Gentium. And those two words are Latin words, and they mean light of the Gentiles or light of the nations. And in that document, the, the, the men who got together in that meeting, they wrote about the nature of the church. Like, what is the church? And they said that, basically, the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church. They used some language that was kind of fancy, but the... Everything of the Church of Christ is present in the Catholic Church, that we have the fullness 
of grace, which is God's divine life, and salvation, those things which help us to achieve that divine life, we have all of it in the Catholic Church. But there are some elements of grace and salvation that exist outside the kind of visible bounds of the church, which is to say, the way they explain it, is that the church kind of is bigger than what we see as the church. So when we think about the church, we think about like, okay, who professes our creed? Who has our sacraments? Who recognizes the Holy Father as the universal pastor of the church? And we would say those people are Catholic, okay? But, you know, there are other people who have something of our faith. They have some of our sacraments, right? And they have some kind of governance, which looks a little bit like ours. All right, so Orthodox believers, right? They have the faith. They have the sacraments. Um, governance is a little bit of a difficulty. Um, our Protestant brothers and sisters, right? They have the, the sacrament of baptism. They have the sacrament of marriage. Um, so we see that like the Catholic grace and salvation is working there, but it's still from the church and for the church. So if people are saved who aren't Catholic, they're saved by our Lord Jesus Christ, and they are saved in the church. What we would say is like the invisible church. All right. So even though they might not be members of the visible church, they're being drawn into the invisible church. Does that mean that they're just fine and we don't need to bother them? We don't need to tell them about Jesus? No, because we have everything. We have so many gifts, so many riches, and we want to tell other people about those gifts and about those riches so that they too can have all of these gifts and all of these riches. But our Lord, in his generosity, in his love, is reaching beyond the bounds of the visible church to bring people to him. So if you want to, with the sisters or with your teacher, read that, a little piece of that document, Lumen Gentium. I think it's paragraph 16, describes how this is true. It's a great question. Marvellous, thank you very much. So for Radio Maria listeners, um, we've come to the end of our broadcast, so thank you very much for joining us. We hope that you enjoyed listening to Father Gregory's answers to our very good and incisive questions from our parish children. So thank you for joining us for the Q&A with Father Gregory Pine.